Hey, I'm Tom Power. This is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm recording this from my home right now as I'm as I'm working from home doing Toy Heart and also doing CBC things. Uh, I hope you're enjoying yourself working at home as well. If you're not working at home, if you're working outside the home, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I can't stop thinking about all the people, you know, the either whether you're a, a doctor or a nurse or a first responder, you're working in a grocery store, you're working in a gas station, you're getting employment insurance checks together. Like, I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful. And I also know that there are times you kind of want anything but the news. I'm definitely trying to practice what they call uh, active news consumption, as opposed to passive news consumption. I like to like seek out seek out news when I need it. So um, if we can be a distraction, if we can be a break from the news around you right now, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be that. And if you're listening to this like years later, I'm talking to you during the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, let's start out with our guest today. Alice Gerard is often called a pioneering woman of bluegrass. In fact, uh, the recording that she made with Hazel Dickens was put into a compilation called Pioneering Women of Bluegrass. But I really think of her as, she's certainly that, and also just an important figure in the development of this music. She, you know, alongside folks like Bill Keith and Peter Rowan, were Northerners, the Greenbrier Boys. They were Northerners who came down to the South and, and discovered this music and help bring it to a different audience, typically a college age audience, which was a big part of making bluegrass the worldwide success that it became. So we talk a little bit about that. Um, I also want you to know that she had a dentist's appointment. Uh, so I, we kind of rushed things along towards the end. I didn't want to make, I didn't want her to have any trouble with her fillings. Um, and on that whole Northern Southerner thing, I'm always really interested in how Northerners romanticize the South and how they actually exist when they go there. So we talk a lot about that as well. But this is the first interview we recorded for Toy Heart. This was when we didn't even have a name for the podcast. I'm sitting in her kitchen, again, terrified as always, sitting down with uh, a living legend, Alice Gerard. Take a listen. So you've been here, what, since the... 80, I've been here since 89. Right. And you, but you're from Washington? I'm from California. Washington State and yeah. California. I was born in Seattle. Yeah. And grew up kind of in the Bay Area, south of Oakland. On It was country back then. And now it's all kind of jumbled together into a big yeah. <laughs> suburban <laughs> mess. But it used to be farms and, and, you know, there were cattle ranches and beet, sugar beet farms and things like that. And that's where I grew up mainly my teen I went to and then we moved into Oakland I went to high school there this was you and your folks and everybody yeah yeah well my father died when I was little my oh. he died in Seattle how old were you I was probably seven something oh. like that so you don't six, remember six. him all that well uh, not really right. I, re- I know people have told me things and I remember some things about him but not super well and were they musicians they were both musicians my mother and her sisters were musicians they um they all studied music. They went to Whitman College in, in Walla Walla, Washington. They they studied music. They formed a little group called the Symphony Sisters Quartet. The and they Symphony t- Sisters Quartet. <laughs> and they I have a poster in there. It's a, a high class program of comedy of music with comedy or something like that. That was how they built it. And they they travel around. They call themselves Intercontinental because they went over the border into Canada briefly. Oh and yeah, came back. <laughs> I saw I saw I saw a record recently, and I was at Neil Rosenberg's house, our friend, and I said, uh, 
I said, it says it says here that I think it was Bobby Sloan, the bass player for J.D. Crow and the New Sad. Uh-huh. He said he's a, he's played all across Canada. And yeah. I said, I think that meant Toronto one time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you, can, you can you can pad your resume pretty well. So what kind of music was it? Were they well, playing? it was it was classical, classically bass. But they but they played, you know favorites like Danny Boy and stuff like that and and they had they wore outfits and it's, <laughs> it was I guess uh, you know and so that's what my mother and she was a really good piano player and they all sang and my dad was a singer he was from England he came over when he was a kid so was he singing like English folk ballads no, at all no he just sang he no he like he was he trained himself he was kind of self-taught guy and he sang um a lot of church music and stuff like that. He directed some choirs yeah. and things like and that. And did you care about music? Were you a... Not particularly. I wasn't, you know, I, I think I was musical because I've never had trouble, you know, hearing tunes and things like that. But then I enjoyed hearing them play. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway from growing up with all that music around was that they did it at home a lot. They, and so when friends would come over, they had a lot of people who were friends who played music, and they would sit around and pound away on the piano and sing. And, and I thought of it as something that was fun to do that you could do at home. Yeah. And I didn't think of it as a stage thing. No, th- and that's important. I've talked to a yeah. bunch of people like that. That's how yeah. I, like my parents were, my parents, well, my dad's gone, but my mom's around. And they were teachers, but they mm-hmm. were, my dad was a union guy, and my mom was, mm-hmm. a, was, a, was a teacher as well. And music was just something we did around the house. Yeah. And I we sang. And I, and I, I think that's not... Um, highlighted as much as it should be the importance yeah. of social music, you know? Social music and the way it makes you feel that it's just part of your daily life in some ways, right. you know? And it's not, you don't have to go and pay money to go see it on a stage. You can do it right at home. Yeah. And it's fun and people have fun doing it. Yeah, it's, and there's nothing better than, yeah. There's nothing better than pe- hearing people sing together. Yeah. yeah. So you end up California. <coughs> yeah, and then... Um, I graduated from high school and my mother had remarried and my dad taught at UC Berkeley. And so he had a sabbatical. So we all went to England and Europe and we looked up my my father's family and we stayed with them and I got to meet a lot of my father's family. Like around when was this? What year you think? 1952-ish. Okay, so kind of pre-Berkeley being what I know it is. Yeah, I mean, Europe hadn't been away from the war that long because I remember we went to Germany and there were all these bombed out buildings, you know, houses. It was still left. But anyway, so we went there for, and a year we traipsed around. My brother and I biked through England and stayed at youth hostels, and then we hitchhiked all through Europe and and came back, and then I went to Antioch College. And that was where I really, and that was in Ohio. Yeah. And that was kind of where I first sort of saw um, <laughs> people, you know, they had beards and they had sandals and they were sitting under trees playing guitars. So, uh, but, but you, I think, so you, there was none of this when you were in California, none of this when you were in New York. I, I wasn't paying attention to I was listening to whatever, you know, was popular. I liked things like, rock like and roll. Come on to my house and my house and I, you know that song? No. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house and my house. It was it Peggy Lee, I can never, uh, no, Rosemary Clooney. Oh, like you like popular, popular. Music. Well, yeah, yeah. The, but the, I liked the stuff that was a little weird. Like that song had had a harpsichord on it, I think, as background. So that was yeah. made it kind of interesting, and it was kind of weird, kind of interesting words. And I liked uh, 
My heart knows where the wild goose knows. My heart goes da, 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 da. wild goose, brother goose. Yeah, yeah no. that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that kind of stuff. It's sort of a mystery boy. There was a boy, a very strange, a strange enchanted boy. I'm releasing this as an EP, by the way. Whether you know it or not, I'm putting this out. But those are the things I was. But I was. But you can tell those are the things I remember. I, there was a lot of crap that I, you know, heard and listened to. But then, when I got to college, and it was, you know, I was. <laughs> I just saw all these people around with. You know, I, I had sort of become alienated by going over. You know, that pr- presented a better. When I went overseas with my family yeah. and we hitchhiked around, I think that. Yeah. I was at that sort of stage where I, you know, during high school, and I'd sort of felt sort of alienated from kids. I wasn't part of the popular group. You know, I was sort of, you know, didn't, I felt different yeah. somehow. Yeah. Like, Plus, and, you were, I mean, you didn't, your dad had died. I mean, there's yeah. a sadness that comes with that. That'll. Well, that'll, I think yeah. there is a well of sadness that, that exists in that situation. I, I, but I, I think it never, like, yeah. I was 24, which is yeah. old, but still young. Yeah. I think it never really, I think yeah. I'm still figuring it out. You yeah. know what I mean? I think it yeah. never really goes away, you know? No, no. I don't think so either. Yeah. But also my parents were kind of liberal and it mm. was during the McCarthy and people like that. And and so I, and all, all the people that I hung out with were, you know, they're like, don't you know that world, United World Federalists, that's a communist organization, you know, stuff like that was going on. So I just had this bit of alienation, didn't feel at one and going to, Europe, traveling like that, it really sort of validated me in a lot of ways. I mean, they were just so, it just changes your perspective when you go overseas or travel in a different country, I think. It really does. So then when I went to college in Ohio and saw these people with beards and long hair and bare feet sitting out under trees and playing guitars and... This is for me. I said, man, this is great. Was it folk music? Was it... It was folk music. It was... You know, there were people, uh, <laughs> there's Richard Dyer Bennett, there was a woman named Susan Reed, who was a folk singer, but they were all, sing- they were singing sort of these sort of almost classical, they're like, black, 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 is the black is the color oh, yeah. of my truth. Black is the color of my love's true hair. Yeah, or whatever, yeah. my love's true hair. <laughs> Not her wig, that's, but her true hair. That's what my dad used to sing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's good, Hank. <laughs> it's really good. And, um, and stuff like that. But it, 1952, the anthology of American folk music by Harry Smith came yeah. out. And a friend of mine at Antioch had a copy of it and loaned it to me. Who's that? A guy who later I married, but his name was Jeremy Foster. Jeremy Foster, right. But Harry Smith, Anthology of American Folk Music. Have you heard of that? Well, here's the thing. I, not, I know it very well. Yeah. Like, big part of my life. Oh, I, my God. I, I, it I, blew I played, my mind. I played a tribute um, concert to it a couple of months ago. But I grew up thinking that Harry Smith was must have been this esteemed academic <laughs> in the halls of, you know, Brown University. He was like an old guy, a bit of an outside, I want to say a bit of a kook. A bit. Living in New York. Kind of a genius gone out of control or something. I mean, he's like, yeah. And he just picked songs he liked. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and 
there's a lot of other stuff he was doing too, but that was one of the things he did. Yeah. And it was, it's just astounding to think back on, in retrospect, how influential that that collection was to so many people, including me. Yeah. And I heard Clarence Ashley playing the Cookie Bird. Oh, the cuckoo is a pretty bird. She wobbles as she flies. And it was like, oh my God, I want to do this. So, so Jeremy just invites you over. Well, he just lo- he said here. Well, he was Jeremy was into this music because he had he was a high school buddy of Mike Seeger's. They they lived not too far from one another when Mike lived in Washington D.C. So they were just friends, and I guess and and Mike had, Jeremy had sort of gotten into this music via Mike because he would go over to their house, you know, and Elizabeth Cotton was working there, and just different. So he was introduced to it, and he loved it. And he introduced me to it through the Harry Smith Anthology. And then I went to the Antioch Music Library, and they had an old 78 of a woman named Texas Gladden singing One Morning in Maine, unaccompanied ballad. And it was like, oh, God, it just blew my mind. When I was a young girl, I used to see pleasure. When I was a young girl, I used to drink out of What was it, you think? Well, I think in that, I think I was really drawn to the sort of more lonesome sounds of the music, like the keening voice, the sounds of voices. I didn't like the pretty kind of Susan Reed um Richard Dyer Bennett, yeah. all that crap, you yeah. know, and all the and the Kingston Trio stuff that came no, later, and all none that of stuff. that. Yeah, and we were by that time we were into Flat and Scruggs, and we were turning our noses up at the Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and the Brothers Four and all that mess. That's nice of you to say mess there. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, and we we just thought we were way too good for all that stuff, and we knew what was really good, yeah. you know. I wonder what and, it is. Like that's that's always my question. Because I felt the same way. Like, I, I'm, I'm sort of past it now where I think that, oh, yeah, well, this yeah, is, you know, but too. like, <laughs> oh, this is pristine and, you know, because I, yeah. I know also there's all kinds of politics and walk-up recording. Oh, and walk-up sure, and, yeah. But I wonder what it is about us or what about our experiences that makes well, us love that sort of rough, yeah. you know, not always perfect, yeah. honest sound. Yeah. You know? I, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. But there's something very appealing to me about the sounds that, you know, Clarence Ashley makes with his singing when he's playing the cuckoo bird and somebody like Doc Boggs and somebody like Bill Monroe um, and that sort of high, Roscoe Holcomb mm. and then, uh, what's her name? Uh, the woman I just mentioned, Texas Gladden, yeah. who was Hobart Smith's sister. And they just have this sound. And then, you know, I was listening to this wonderful recording, it wasn't on the anthology, but there's this incredible recording of a woman named, uh, I might remember it. Anyway, she was from Alabama, I think. She sang, um, a, it was an old primitive Baptist song. Mm-hmm. She was a black woman, African-American woman from Alabama. Dorothy Melton is her name. Okay. And she sings, it's called, um, 
the day is past and gone and i've heard i know that song yeah yeah the, and she sings it and, she, and it's just like she draws it out like, days is past and gone It takes her like a whole line of you know phrase to sing you know four syllables yeah. of a song. Isn't it's that great? Really incredible. Yeah. And I've heard a White Primitive Baptist Church sing that too. It's pretty amazing. But I just love those sounds. You know, it's very kind of lonesome mm. and bluesy stuff. And the, of course, with the Harry Smith, everything was on there. Yeah. I mean, you were listening to blues. You're listening to Carter Family. You're listening to Cajun music. You're listening to I forget, did it have bluegrass? Well, I probably had some Bill and Charlie on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think I had the Monroe Brothers on yeah. it. And I had like Eck Robertson on it. Yeah. And fiddle tunes and stuff right. like that, which is kind of, a right. pro, you know, projecting yeah. into that stuff. Yeah. So, and it wasn't like we were separating the music into categories of like bluegrass, old time. It just was traditional music. Mm. And we didn't, I mean, the roots music hadn't, that phrase hadn't come into being back then. It was just like, you know, we called it. Traditional music, and to us, it it was true folk music. Right, right. <laughs> Even though all the things on the anthology were from commercial recordings that had been made commercially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, is that, that's interesting. The, yeah, that's the yeah. secret. Yeah, that people don't talk about. Yeah, is that I mean, I, I even just reading the history of like Ralph Peer and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, oh, very, yeah, very selective of what, yeah. they rec- what they recorded. Sure. And uh, oftentimes in class and race as well, you know, like yeah. what what white artists were expected to record versus what black artists were expected to record. Yeah. But also, I mean, yeah, they were singing up songs they had heard yeah. from other people. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's interesting. So, so you, you, when do you start playing the music? Well, then I was teaching myself how to play the guitar. You know, you go up and I, you know, you. I don't know, you didn't take lessons, or at least you just go ask somebody to show you a chord, and they'd show you a chord, and then you'd learn another chord, and then you'd try a little of this. And I was trying to learn the banjo at the same time. Yeah. And so um, I can't remember. I guess I probably bought an old guitar of some kind, or somebody might have loaned me one. I don't even remember what it was or anything much about it. But But so I was just teaching myself and getting people to show me stuff. And that's how we did it <laughs> were you were you and jeremy married at the time no you guys were together but we we were going with one another at, okay. at antioch Just going steady as they say yeah, yeah and and that was also the time when neil rosenberg was at uh oberlin, oberlin mm-hmm. and they had a band called i think the plum creek boys or something like that and they would come down to antioch and we'd have we'd play together and just cool <laughs> he says you were one of the first if not the first one of the first people he ever saw play scrug style five-string banjo oh yeah i was i was attempting it <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> i actually entered a band there was a local banjo contest somewhere in the area of yellow springs and i went out and got in the contest and there, there were there was one other person in it and it was he was a really good banjo player but i won oh yeah what'd you play ban- i don't remember the tune Maybe it might have been Liza Jane or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, and, you know, I sort of, it was unusual to see a woman playing the banjo, and mm-hmm. I think that kind of tipped me over the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my only, because I wasn't anywhere near as good as that guy was. But anyway, so, um, 
Yeah, so that's what was going on. And I was just, you know, we were playing constantly. We, you know, while we were at Antioch, um, <clears throat> well, we quit. Jeremy quit. He quit school. He quit school because he was going to flunk out. He, his, his grandfather, his, his mother's father was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Albert A. Michelson. And Jeremy was majoring in physics. And I think there was just so much sort of family stuff and you know that he just wasn't doing well expectations on him and a lot of expectations too, yeah. and stuff so he decided to drop out before they he flunked out and so we both quit you quit too yeah same kind of thing you just you weren't feeling because it because we were just well yeah i didn't know i was i was kind of like well, we know what I'm doing here. You yeah. know, I mean, I was not academically inclined. What were you doing, English or? I was. I think I majored. I started first in sociology because it was just something that people talked about and mentioned. It was then. I, then I went at some point. I switched to German, and then <laughs> some point, I, you know, literature or something like this. But I, you know, I was just. I wasn't interested in school. Yeah. I really wasn't. And um, so we both quit. We got married. And, of course, the minute he quit, it was the days of the draft. He got drafted. Jeremy got drafted. So then we were two years, and he was went to basic training in Columbia, South Carolina. Somewhere along in there, we got married and had a child, our first child in 1957. And, the, and then uh, he went back to school in 1960, maybe. And he changed his major to math. And that seemed to be... You know, he, he was fine then. But while we were there, Jeremy talked the student council into putting on a concert of the Osborne Brothers, which was the first time, the first time there'd ever been, they'd ever played at a college concert. And it was, there's this great article that a guy named Tom Teepen wrote for Mule Skinner News from his memory of being at that concert. Yeah. It's called... Does anybody here like baseball? And I can I can text you a yeah, send, link to it. Send it over to me because I hear that those guys like they came to the colleges. They didn't really know how to play to a college, right? It was really the article is hilarious. I mean, they were trying to connect with this really weird, strange audience, and they were, you know they were doing their usual bluegrass shit, you know. And it was like, what, you know? And you know, one of the things was, does anybody here like baseball? Silence. <laughs> Because it was, you know, it was like that, that kind of a college. And, but they finally count, found some common ground. And then the next year, we we had the Stanley Brothers in. Oh, cool. And that was They had Lindy Clare with them, and that was really great. And Lindy Clare did this great thing where he imitated an old woman playing the organ in an old church. And he took the hair, undid the frog of his fiddle, fiddle bow, yeah. and put the hair over the bridge, oh, and yeah. over the strings, and, and the... The, the, and then played it so it sounded like an organ because it, it ran across all the strings and he, he played this <laughs> this gospel song. It was really neat. Yeah. So so what was it like for you to bring these? Because uh, I can only imagine to you, like like to me in so many ways, you know, these people were recordings to you, these people you were you were fans of, and, and, they, and they may have also symbolized something to you, like the authenticity of the South or something about the, the, the traditional folk of the South or whatever, any kind of idea behind it. And then when these people actually come to the college, one is that they don't really know how to play to a college audience because they're used to playing to country yeah. audiences. And two, I mean, what, what, what do you think when these people show up? We were just so happy that they were there. Yeah. 
I don't remember. I think that maybe we, we suggested maybe that, you know, maybe Ralph play, play Pretty Polly or something like that because it's more like a folk song that people have heard as a folk song and th- that they might be familiar. So I think we might have made a couple of suggestions like that. I don't remember. But but it was just great that they were there. And I... I <laughs> I don't. It was it was wonderful, but you know the other thing too is that while we were out back in, we lived in around Washington D.C. and we we would go. You know there were these country music parks north of Baltimore. Yeah, I don't know too much about these. These were kind of like places you could go to have a picnic and listen to country music. It was one was, well, there were a lot of them. They were all over the place, but the two primary ones that we went to were. And they were they were there for a long time. One was New River Ranch, I think, was the first one, and the other, and that was in uh, well, just right near the Balt- the Maryland Pennsylvania line, and Sunset Park, which was also in the just you know maybe twenty miles, half an hour away from where New River Ranch was, yeah. and. There's a, I just found on the internet, yes, just the other day, a great documentary, I can send you the link, yeah. that somebody did in 1992 at Sunset Park talking about how Sunset Park got started. And it, they, they're interviewing, it's just before Bill died, and he, he, they interviewed him, they, talk, they had a lot of old photos, and they talked about Olabel. And... Gonna write me a letter, gonna send it. Olabel Reed and her brother Alec Campbell, who had come up from North Carolina and settled there, along with so many other people from the South who had moved north to get jobs during the Second World War, primarily, and, and in the factories and stuff around Baltimore, they settled up in there. And, and there was a real market for the music among local people, well, mainly white audiences, but so the parks, and I remember, you know, so, and we would go to these parks. Every Sunday you could go and you'd pay a dollar, 25 cents or whatever it was to get in. You brought a picnic, you sat all afternoon and listened to maybe two bands, one ba- one main band and then a sub band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they played for hours, you know, and you all afternoon. And and then you'd have a picnic lunch, you maybe invite the Stanley brothers over to eat lunch with, you know, your See, picnic. And they would do it, you know, they and they sit around sign autographs and talk with people, yeah. you know, about how's your I- family this year, you know. <laughs> and it was just so there was no like ropes keeping people apart yeah. you know i remember at sunset park one time bill bill monroe monroe was there and he started a baseball game out in the backfield somewhere oh yeah because he was a baseball he loved yeah, baseball he loved baseball and um and it was just very down home i just can't get over that how because you go to a festival now oh yeah we're backstage oh yeah there's backstage then there's everybody else and there's yeah the, yeah but you say the, the stanley brothers and, and oh yeah and, they just hung around you know, they just hung out and they talk with people and and I took a lot of photographs back then too. I was sort of getting interested in photography and so I have a lot of a lot of photographs, but it's I'm kind of go through them now. But anyway, so that we had been going to these shows and at the parks 
and Mike and Jeremy would take their tape recorders. And other people too, like there were a few other people, there were some people from New York who, who were kind of getting into it, coming down and maybe re doing some recording too. And they made all these recordings of the shows that were at Sunset Park and New River Ranch. And they kept them and, and they're all in collections now, I think. I mean, they're at WNC and different yeah. places. What was, what was Bill like? He was just friendly, you know. He's and a he, star, man. Yeah, but but you know, nice back then. This was like the fi late fifties, mm -hmm. early sixties. I mean, bluegrass wasn't doing so well. You know, I mean, Flat and Scruggs. When did they hit with their TV um, show? And yeah, all? I mean, it's probably early early sixties. Yeah, before, and this maybe. was just maybe before that. Bluegrass, yeah. they were struggling. I mean, there's a story <laughs> that I remember going around, whether it's true or not, about how the Stanley Brothers drove into the park in their car with the windows rolled up so people would think they had air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the buses were kind of old. And, yeah. they, you know, they broke down. Usually one of the band members was the driver, you know. <laughs> Everybody was tired. The bass might be on the top of the car. Yeah. It was just, you know, it was a hard, hard life. Yeah. My friend Penny Parsons, who lives not too far from me, wrote a book on Curly Seckler yeah. called uh, something Troubadour, Bluegrass Troubadour. Like that, yeah. And, you know, he talked a lot about traveling and it was hard yeah. work yeah. and they weren't making a lot of money. I mean, you'd go, they'd maybe a lot, some of them would be headquartered in Nashville like Bill. They'd play the Opry on Saturday night, and then they drive all night to come up to Sunset Park and New River Ranch and places like that Yeah, for a, for a Sunday afternoon show. Are we playing? And, Were you jamming at these things? Well, there was some jamming sort of around, but it wasn't, not like it is now so much when you go to a bluegrass festival and there's, t some people don't even go to the stage. Mm. They just stay and jam the whole weekend with their buddies. Yeah. But it, so it wasn't like that. But you were playing at home. You were playing Playing music. at home, yeah. Yeah. That's all we did was... We'd have we'd get together with our friends and and this was in DC when we were sort of living in DC at that this time. And were you uh, how do I put this? Were you generally the only woman playing? Well, there were a f there were other women, but we were s I don't know. Let's see. So there was there there was this band called. It was somebody in her all-girl bluegrass band. Oh. Be Betty Amos. Right. Betty Amos in her all-girl bluegrass band. I never met her, but she was around during those days, but mm -hmm. I never met her. Right. The, but the people I was listening to were like Wilma Lee Cooper, mm -hmm. Ola Bell, and then people like Cousin Emmy. And oh, it blow for my baby do come home. Oh, it blow for my baby do come home. Oh, it blow for my baby to come home. Oh, it blow like she never blow before. But in your scene, at the in our scene, when you were hanging out at yeah, the house, it, it was just you. It playing. was just us playing. Gloria Bell, Gloria, who was Gloria Flickinger, she was really trying to make it. Hazel and I were kind of like, we weren't sort of trying to make it. We, we, we were just liking the music and wanted to do yeah, it. Yeah, we haven't talked about this. When did Hazel come into the picture? Well, Hazel was met Mike, so Mike was kind of a. He was kind of a connecting factor, kind of a linchpin in a lot of these relationships. He 
was working during the Korean War as a conscientious objector in the in a sanatorium, Mount Wilson, outside of Baltimore. He had a gig. He had a job. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he had jobs. He was okay. he was an electrical engineer and stuff like that. So he was working that, but he but he got this CO job as a uh, doing something at Mount Wilson. Hazel's brother was a patient there. One of her brothers. And was a patient at the sanatorium. At the sanatorium okay. and met Mike, because Mike, you know, when he wasn't doing anything, he'd be sitting fiddling on his mandolin or his banjo or something. And I guess Hazel's brother, <clears> I forget <throat> which brother it was, liked music, and they almost all of her brothers and sisters played in some fashion. And so got to know Mike and at some point took him home to meet the family, of which Hazel was one. <laughs> and that's how Hazel and Mike met. And then Jeremy met Hazel through Mike. And then Jeremy introduced me to Hazel, said, oh, there's this little girl. She's a little skinny girl. She's got a great big voice, and you should hear her. And that's, that, I, I remember when he told me that, and, and we met. And then there and were, how, how did it go when you first met? It was good. I mean, she was, I mean, I, it, was, it, was very, it was interesting, because she had, um, you know, she was from the country. She had moved up. She'd been up there a while. But she was kind of suspicious of people. She, I mean, she wasn't immediately trusting of people that, you know, and, and, and she'd had kind of a, a rough life in some ways yeah. and still was having kind of rough. She was working in a factory. And, um, you know, she had, she had played some bluegrass music with various bands in the area around Baltimore because there were lots of bars in Baltimore that had bluegrass bands playing. And they would call her up and say, hey, would you play bass? And then maybe they let her sing a Kitty Wells song. That was kind of the role of women in bluegrass yeah, at this point. Yeah, it right? was. was. Play the bass and sing one song. Yeah. <laughs> maybe two. Yeah, yeah, if you're lucky. If the set's too long, maybe yeah. two. Yeah, right. Now we're going to let the little girl get up here and sing a song. She's going to sing, when the blue moon turns to gold again, and then that's going to be, you know, that's going to be yeah. all right. It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angel. So she was, she had done a lot of that, and she was, <laughs> you know, she wasn't. So. She was a bit sick of it? She... Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, she didn't say anything to me at the time, but I was definitely listening to her a lot. So she she was really my primary influence. And then gradually, you know, we were surrounded by people who were very encouraging of us, you know, as, you know, why don't you try singing something together? And, and, and the scene around the D.C. Baltimore area was that there were a lot of, get-togethers at people's houses and what we did was play music that's all we did yeah i mean what else do you do at a party right you sit around <laughs> sing songs pick a little bit yeah yeah and, and were, so, were you and all amateurs were you or we were, were you? all amateurs although sometimes people would come to the parties who were like buzz busby i used to come sometimes and and different people who were out there professionally working but Hazel had met a, a woman there in Baltimore who was a social worker and just and was was married to a guy who liked the music and um and sort of took Hazel under her wing. So Hazel was kind of learning that you know there were other things out there besides her dysfunctional family, you know, <laughs> and that kind of life. And and I think this really helped broaden her ability to accept other people into her life that weren't that she wasn't necessarily used to so that she she 
sort of gradually accepted me into her life. And then we started singing together at these parties, encouraged by all our friends like Lamar Greer. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeremy was very encouraging. He took some promo pictures of us. He was, you know, thinking, you guys could get some jobs. And was, th- was that was just because you guys sounded good or you were two women in music together? Because it sounds like <clears throat> it never really happened before to have two women, no. you know? You know, kind of, no, right, you're right. But there were, you know, there were women, but they were always, like Stoney Cooper was with Wilma Lee. I know Gloria Flickinger, Gloria Bell, she joined some bands, you know, like Jimmy Martin, and that he was not nice to her. Is that so? Yeah. And when she was with Jimmy, you hear these shows, you know, and they just, and I'm talking to, um, what's his name, Alan Mundy, who played, was in the band at the same time Gloria Bell was in, and he talks about how mean Jimmy was to her and how she could possibly stand it but I think she just wanted to play so bad that she put up with that crap and um, so there was there were those kinds of things mm-hmm. and if, if you had the if your husband like Stoney Cooper was there you know nobody's going to mess with you yeah and and Wilma Lee was a powerful personality too and a great singer and great guitar player so you and Hazel then when did you so when did you go from oh, why don't you sing together Hazel and Alice in the living room to like, well, maybe we can do a gig here. Maybe we can play together. Maybe we can make this a Well, thing. we made a, I think we, before we did that, we made a recording. I think I was trying to get it straight because I'm trying to put it into this narrative for this book I'm putting together about with the photographs and stuff. And it's like, ah, somewhere. So we had agreed, we thought we should make a record. Because you knew something was, this sounded good. Well, Here's what happened, according to, to people I've talked to. I called up Peter Siegel the other day. He, it was he, he and David Grisman were living in New York. They came down to a bluegrass festival that was around Washington, D.C., but it got rained out. So instead, they came over to this party that was happening, and Hazel and I were there. And Peter remembers that he was hearing us sing, and he said, boy, that sounds really good. And that somehow or other he made the suggestion that we should make a recording. And, and so that's how that sort of got started. And we, he says we made a demo in Pete Kuykendall's basement, which I don't remember, but, and gave it to Folkways because Peter was doing some work for Folkways, I guess. And, and Mike Seeger, of course, too, was, was doing a lot of field recording and putting it out on Folkways. So yeah. he, he knew Mo Ash, and they both thought we could probably do something on folkways yeah i think i have that one is that the alice foster and yeah Hazel there Dickens were two record? we did two on folkways that later became combined into one cd yeah on smithsonian the pioneering Family. women of yeah. bluegrass yeah and so but those are the two recordings so that first recording with chubby wise lamar greer hazel and me and david grisman and so <laughs> young, young david grisman too. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 just a punk kid and <laughs> and this and so we did it in this church it was the first Unitarian church at 14th and Harvard. But they set up a tape recorder and we had some microphones and we just did takes. Now when you see that gal of mine, tell her if you please. When she goes, make a friend to roll a dirty sleep. Walking in my sleep, babe, walking in my sleep. Up and down that Dixie line, walking in my sleep. Where'd you get the songs? What did, well, we did... Walking in my sleep, I'd have to go get it. But, but you, like, um, you were just picking songs you liked. Yeah, yeah, songs we liked. 
No one was writing. We did a at couple of Carter family either. things. I think we maybe did an old Bill Monroe song. And you did. When did you do the one I love is gone? Oh, that was I think on the second one. And then he, Bill gave you that song. Well, he he was. You know, they would stop at my house sometimes on their way through. They'd pull the bus up and they'd come in. What? Yeah, I'd spend the night. Bill Monroe so and his bluegrass yeah, boys would just stop yeah. at your house. <laughs> and right. so, and we were standing around the living room and he said, you know, I've got this song. I think you girls could really do a good job on it. And then he played it for me, The One I Love Is Gone. Yeah. And Peter Rowan showed me a little run I could do on the guitar. Mm-hmm. And we recorded it. Song. It's and my, then, since then we made up another verse, but we but it was after the recording was out. So that's my favorite. That was the, my introduction to you guys. It's a great song. The first time I heard Hazel and Alice yeah. was a live board tape of Newport. Yeah. Um, and you guys are singing the hell out of it, man. Yeah. And I think David's playing mandolin in that moment. Could be. Yeah. yeah. And is it ever good? And it's more poignant. And we don't got to talk about this too much, but it was more poignant when I found out you lost Jeremy mm-hmm. around around this time, right? Around that time, it was before we recorded. It was just before some, you know, he was just killed in a car accident. Oh my god! And just totally unexpectedly, and I, and I, all the the sequence of events during that time sort of gets mixed up in my mind because yeah. I think I was just sort of. Well, yeah, kids too, right? Yeah, four kids, and four but, little uh, kids under the age of seven. And you're by yourself. Six. All of a sudden. Yeah. So no wonder, like it's yeah. trauma, right? It's so trauma. it was trauma, and and um, but there were so many friends, my you know friends, just all the whole music world just rallied around me around there in D.C. You know, and Hazel was ever present, and Lamar was just a good friend, and just everybody, Pete. So, and I had a cousin that lived nearby, and she was great too. So. So we pulled through, but but I the sequence of events. So somehow or other, we recorded the first album, but I think it was after he was killed because Peter remembers that he wondered whether it was going to stop the recording entirely because this had happened. And it didn't. But it didn't. Why not? I don't know. We just, maybe, I, I don't know. He was killed in 64. I think we recorded it in 65. So maybe we just... You know, let some time go by. I guess not, not to be indelicate. I mean, yeah, but like uh, when you go through something like that, you know, you lose your you lose your husband. Mm-hmm. Tragically, I mean, probably a phone call. Yeah, just tells you. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'm. You, you wouldn't be blamed if you said, "Well, now listen, I got to stop playing music. I got to yeah. get a job working in the car factory or something." Well, like that, that's you know? true. Yeah, I. I mean, I was fortunate in that. Uh, because I had four kids, I got maximum social security. Yeah. I'm not a big spender. Um, we sued because it was not the accident was not his fault, mm-hmm. and and so we there were his family had had some friends of his family stepped in a guy who was actually Jeremy's boss, I mm-hmm. think, at the time when he was killed, and made sure that. I filled out the right forms that I had a lawyer and I didn't you know I would not have known what to do at all I didn't know as a friend of mine used to say shit from apple butter yeah <laughs> and and you know I just didn't think about that stuff 
And so he made sure I filled out what I needed to do for to get Social Security. He made sure I had a lawyer. We went to court. I do remember all the kids had to go to court with me so that, you know, maximum <laughs> pathos. Um, and But there was a limit. They had a ceiling about how much in Virginia at that time, which is where the accident was. That So you, you couldn't just sue them for... Um, money to last you the rest of your life, stuff like that. So so I got whatever the maximum was of $35,000 or yeah. something, whatever. So and it was quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, back then, a lot of money. Back then. And so I was able to buy a house, and we had bought a house already in in Arlington. And my daughter, my eldest, our eldest daughter had started kindergarten. <clears throat> so, and the people gave us our down payment back, which was really nice gave me the down payment back. So we, that didn't cost us. We got, and I bought another house in, in D.C., and that's where we moved. And, and that's where the rest of my life started happening. Right. The rest of your life started happening. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, just without the rest of my life without Jeremy. Yeah. And, um, and, and, but, it, but the sequence of events is very confused in my mind. Well, and yeah. I, you know, I really... I have to sort of talk to other people sometimes to remember sort of what happened, and all of them are losing their memories now. So, <laughs> <laughs> is the blind leading the blind? The as blind they say. are yeah. leading the blind. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so but but we made it through, and I didn't have to go scrounging around for a job. I had no training whatsoever. Yeah. In any, you know, the the only job I'd ever really had was a clerk typist when Jeremy was in the army. I worked in the, <laughs> the G, whatever the lowest GS three or whatever you can get is I was a clerk typist you know I'd type up spec sheets and things like this and that was you know <laughs> the best thing I ever did in my life was I took typing in high school yeah that's really stood me in good stead yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you and Hazel so then so Jeremy passes and you and Hazel keep going you start making records yeah. I the question I want to ask is when did it start taking off but but I get the feeling well, you may not have felt it in that moment that it was taking off we did not feel it I mean, I, I would say that, I mean, I hesitate to speak for Hazel, but I, I sort of feel, <laughs> when I think back on it, we didn't ha- sort of have a clue. We, we did the two Folkways records, and then we, di- we did two for Rounder. Hazel, I have great titles. It was a Hazel and Alice and Hazel Dickens and Alice Durant. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, the first one was Who's That Knocking? And the second one was... The, the Folkways ones had titles. Won't you come and sing for me? Yeah. Who's that knocking? But the, the round <laughs> ones. ones. So, yeah. But now, which one the, do you like more, Hazel and Alice or <laughs> Hazel Dickinson? <laughs> no, but we were, you know, we were beginning to, um, we'd play at some festivals. We'd play, you know, we had a couple of local jobs. Um, there. <laughs> we could, there was this bar called the Hawk and Dove in downtown D.C., which was kind of a bar that politicos would go to. And, and they had some music. So they hired us. <laughs> but the first night we played, they, they fired us because we were such they, – they felt like we were two downers for the bar crowd. <laughs> and so, hey, I, I interviewed Hazel. The only reason I remember this is because I found it on a tape where I had done this little interview with her. And she, she's remembering it. And she said, and I told the crowd, I said, 
If you like this music, come on up to the house and we'll do some more. (laughs) (laughs) That was our parting shot. And she doesn't remember if we got paid or not, whatever. So, but we, I I know we played at some, I mean, a place called maybe the Fairfax Bar and Grill. And that was, I remember one time Bill Monroe stopped by and played with us for a little bit. But, you know, we weren't, we were doing more things like festivals. And then it was sort of the beginning of the, women's movement mm. but we were kind of kind of we just didn't have a clue in some ways so you didn't see yourselves as like sort of part of the women's movement at all or like what you were no. doing or what you were doing was was important no right. i remember being i don't know maybe wilmington south carolina i had gone down there with mike at because we were starting to go together at that yeah. time in the late 60s. And and the New Lost City Rampers were playing at some strike down in Wilmington, North Carolina. Or maybe it was South Carolina. And I was at a motel with my daughter. And we were sitting around the swimming pool. And this friend, one of the people who organized this, this strike and the concerts and everything, came over and she said, oh, man. I just came from the best women's liberation meeting. And I remember looking up at her and saying, what's women's liberation? <laughs> you know, so I was like, uh. mm-hmm. but But we knew something was happening because a few of the gigs, like a couple of gigs I remember we went to, we were totally shocked to find it filled with a lot of women. And then we did another job and we were shocked to find that it was, again, filled with a lot of women and they weren't even letting men into the concert. <laughs> really? Somewhere. I forget where it was. Yeah. And, and so it began to sort of seep into our brains that something was going on. Right. And um, Did you get pushback from, like, did men, mm, men in bluegrass ever? I think Hazel used to get pushback sometimes, and she was tr- not treated well sometimes. But I didn't have that same experience when she was playing with those little bluegrass bands. Right. So when you guys were going to the big festivals. No. Right. No. Right. And they were doing workshops on women's songs and stuff like that. So something was going on. And I remember the first time I sang Custom Made Woman Blues at, at a workshop. I got a standing ovation. I had to do it again right away. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? Yeah. So we were sort of, you know, and I think that then, but I think the big thing that happened to us that kind of brought our consciousness out and said oh you know kind of light bulb was that we joined this tour that this woman had started uh bernice regan and ann romaine Mm. bernice is sweet honey in the rock founder of sweet honey in the rock and ann was an activist from Gastonia, North Carolina, who was living in Atlanta at the same time Bernice was living there, and they were working in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And um, they got this idea to start a tour of traditional music that would be integrated, black and white musicians, and it would go around the South, because at that point, people were discovering Roscoe and Doc and bogs and people like that and taking them up north to festivals this is 60s in the mid 60s hey? late 50s early 60s early, early to mid 60s oh, okay so the, the what so-called folk revival is yeah so the folk revival is happening but all that's going up north philly folk festival newport uh Fre- new york friends of old time music hey, the gaslight and stuff like the that. gaslight yeah, yeah. yeah and nothing is happening in the south so 
the idea was to take traditional music around the South, integrated, and do concerts in colleges and communities and wherever else there, there could be an audience and speak to the struggles of working people just through the fact that we'd have Doc Boggs, who was, had once been a coal miner, or Nimrod Workman, or Doc Boggs, or, uh, you know, and Ola Bell, you know, the, and, and there were, so they started this tour. And what, they, what was the what was the goal when you say it was based around the civil rights movement? Was it about promoting integration what, of schools, or was it about yeah, all everything? I mean, it was just like kind of a lefty. Enjoy. You should appreciate your own music, mm-hmm. and and it's and integration is a good thing, right? And you know, we're not, we're African Americans are not the enemies of white people. The people who are taking advantage of you, the coal companies and the the um, factory owners, capitalism, the capitalist, capitalists yeah. Yeah. are the ones you need to be fighting, not your next door neighbor oh, who well. might be black, and so that sort of thing. So, so we we toured. On, we we started going on those tours, and I think Anne liked the idea. It was appealing to her that we were two women doing stuff together. They couldn't afford to pay for a whole band to go, so we. That's when we started doing trying to figure out stuff we could do, the two of us together, with our sort of somewhat limited instrumental abilities. And that's what those tapes were about, where you know we were sitting around practicing stuff. Trying that, to figure, you know, out, trying what to figure out what we could yeah. do. If, could I take a guitar break? Could she, you know, she could play backup guitar, and I could take a break, and I could play auto harp, and maybe a little banjo, something like that. And so we were working stuff out like that, and we were trying everything. And um, that's also kind of where the the two rounder albums, which the first one in particular was, was some of the, some things that we had been working on just the two of us, mm-hmm. and but we we did add a few instruments to it. What was the awakening you had on the tour? Well, here's what I think. I you know I had never I was not aware of the whole coal mine situation. You know, and we would go into eastern Kentucky and you'd see people who lived in poverty. And during the, the time we were touring, it was anti, there was a lot of anti-strip mining. Now it's mountaintop removal, which is almost worse, but it was strip mining then. And, um, and we'd stay in communities where people would talk about these things. And sometimes there, there might be a some kind of an event going on to promote to promote anti-strip mining and we we we'd go to the community and we'd play for the strikers or the people working you know and, and organizations like Apple Shop were starting to you know people Vista and all that stuff people were coming in and trying to do stuff and that was in the mountain south and then we'd all we'd do one tour in the mountain south and then one in the deep south every year and it was always, you know, there were people, I mean, if when I stopped to think about the people that were on that tour, Bessie Jones, Elizabeth Cotton, Ola Bell Reed, and her husband Bud sometimes would be on it, um, Mabel Hillary, uh, Roscoe Holcomb, and just Johnny Shines. I mean, just all these people, and we'd just bounce around in this van, you know, and go from place to place and just ate together and traveled together and... Sometimes we'd sleep in motels. Sometimes we'd stay with people 
you know, how, and it was always on a shoestring. And is that when you and, and Hazel start writing more political songs? Yes. And I think what happened is that it sort of gave Hazel permission, because Anne was very political, and she was always like, you know, tell him what you went through, you know, tell him. And, and she was very encouraging yeah. of us, of Hazel to speak her mind. And I think it, the, the, she just sort of gave her permission to say a lot of things that were, she had been feeling. But had, so this is stuff really, she'd been talking about. Like she, she, well, she, she didn't really talk about it. She didn't really talk about it until I think that somehow she was very shy, very reticent, somewhat untrusting of people, you know, and she didn't really talk about stuff. She might say something smart ass, you know, take a jab at something, but she, she didn't really, she wasn't one to open up easily. And so, but I think that the tours and with Anne's sort of encouragement and stuff like that, she began to, it sort of gave her permission. You know, I'm putting that in quotes. Yeah. Appreciate that for the, for the the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To kind of, open up about stuff and that's when she really started writing he's had more hard luck than most men could stand the mines was his first love but never his friend he's lived a hard life and hard he'll die Black lungs done got him. His time is nigh. And you did too. And and me too. And it, and it raised my conscience. I mean, I didn't know half. I mean, I was like, this was all new territory for me. And that was like, I started reading all this stuff. And, you know, we'd go around and we'd talk to people, you know. And, and I was witnessing firsthand some of these things. And people would talk about their experiences. So, so I was really getting an education. Mm-hmm. And that made me more conscious too when you start writing and recording these political songs there is there a change then in your in your audiences and your reception and in, in anything do you notice a change not really i mean we were doing a mixture of things it wasn't all political no. songs but but um could, could you sing them at festivals could you sing yeah them? yeah yeah yeah, sure. I, mean, I spoke to Abigail Washburn not that long ago, and mm-hmm. she talked to me. I asked her about because she has she she has some song on her and Bela's new album. I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's, it's an old song about my mining, and it says mm-hmm. you know one of the lines is like you know the evils of capitalism is the problem. I am a coal miner's wife. I'm sure I wish you well. Let's sing this capitalist system. I asked her, you know, so how do you feel singing that song? You know, sometimes in in places that may not agree with you or places mm-hmm. that were. And she said, well, you know, it, it can be a bit challenging. It can be a little scary, but you do it anyway. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Well, that's kind of my feeling. Although I I I am tuned in. I mean, I've <laughs> two audiences usually, and I probably I might hedge my bets a little bit here and there, but. If you were at a college, you know, they were like, yeah. Sing more about yeah. the, yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you were in a community, it was usually because you'd been invited there because they wanted you to come and sing a protest song because they were challenging some. And the only people there were people who were on the same side you were on. Yeah. So that wasn't a problem. Um, 
there were some times when the fact that we were integrated, you know, you could sort of you go into a restaurant or something, and we always were very careful that we would mingle. You know, we we wouldn't just you know white folks sit in one booth. Yeah, and yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we 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 kept it. We integrated ourselves. You know, we made sure, and we consciously did that. And and people, you know, you get looks sometimes, but we never had a right. an overt problem. So so when did the before we get to the actual break, like when did you start feeling that okay, well maybe this has run its course, maybe this is maybe I'm going to stop singing with Hazel soon. Well, now this is my memory of this. Mm-hmm. So, but when we were recording our second LP for Rounder which I had written a song called Beaufort County Jail. Mm, powerful song. Black woman in a white man's jail Black woman in a white man's jail No one call a friend Jailer watch that woman by day and night Woman by day and night Based on a true story, right? Yeah, it's the Joanne Little uh, who was an African-American woman who was raped and then she murdered, she was raped by the jailer and she killed him with an ice pick. And she she won her case. It was the first time that it ever happened. It had the, a woman had the right to defend herself when she was attacked. Anyway, so I wrote a song about her and it, wanted to put it on the album. And what I remember is that Ken did not want to put it on the LP because he was afraid it wouldn't sell in the South. Ken Irwin from Rounder. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't sell in the South. Yeah. Okay. And that was, I was, I fought so hard. I really had to fight. I feel like I had to fight. I'd be curious to, I have never talked with him about this, but I wonder what he remembers about that. But the other thing too was that Hazel didn't really back me up. Really? She, yeah. Because I, I see her as a very political oh, yeah. person, you know? Well, but yeah, but, you know, I mean, she was, Ken was her boyfriend at the time. Right. And, and so and I think there was just, it was hard for her. And, you know, I'm not, but I think that was sort of the beginning of the, the end. And you started feeling? Yeah, I started feeling like. I need to try to do something else. I guess a little alone, too, you know, when something like that happens, you start feeling like you're a little bit alone in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true, no. But, but she, I mean, I, you know, I would just say that she was one of the most important people in my lives, my life, and, um, and in my kids' lives, too. They, yeah. they really loved Hazel. As, as much as you want to talk about it, like, how did you, how did it actually end? How did you break the news? It's funny because I don't really remember this part either in detail. And the thing that strikes me is that one of the rounder people told me that they came down to try to talk me out of it to D.C. People were but trying to talk you out of it? I don't remember yeah. that. I really don't remember. So I guess it was, I have some PTSD around that too. I guess things were, things were about to get really even bigger for you guys, right? You know? Well, we were kind of on the cusp of probably something, of being... Right. Of having some good things happen. And how did Hazel, how did Hazel take it? She was very upset. She really was really upset. Mad. And it, it yeah. She was angry. She was felt betrayed, I think. And it you know, it took a while for us to get back on back friends again. Kind of. But well, it did we did eventually. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm get to that in a second, but like when did you 
What were you going to do after that? Were you, was your plan to keep playing music? Or I didn't know. Were you married yeah. to Mike at the time? I was married to Mike. I very shortly uh, started a band with, uh, with two other women called the Harmony Sisters. Who are they? Well, they are Irene Herman, who now lives in Santa Cruz, and Jeannie McCleary, who at that time was living in Louisiana. And it was really fun. They were, it was really a great band. I mean, it was, they were so much fun to tour with and travel with. I had a, a Strange Creek Singers record. Then there was the Strange Creek Singers. Yeah, that was good. I like that record yeah, a lot. Yeah, I love that record. Yeah. You and Mike and it was uh, Mike and Hazel and me and Lamar and Tracy Shore. So this is before you and Hazel split. Yeah, up. it right. was before, but right. probably not too long before. Yeah, that's a good record. Yeah, we toured the Strange Week Singers. We toured in Europe. We went to Wales. It was a good band. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you made, I enjoyed that yeah. a lot. Yeah. So then you then you continue on. You play music. You're you know I, I had the Tom Brad and Alice records. Ooh. I mean that's a lot later I think, mm-hmm. but I really love those records too. I do too. And then the old time Herald. Yeah, I I had moved to Galax, Virginia, because I I had met Tommy Gerald by that time. Oh, the incredible fiddle player, yeah. Tommy Gerald. Yeah. Yeah. Played cards in England, I've gambled in Spain, went back to Rhode Island, I'm gonna play my last game. And he'd been on a couple of tours that Mike had put together, and and I, we had gone down to meet him, and and I dis, and I got a grant to study fiddle with him, a couple of these sort of heritage fellowship grants that they gave to students who wanted to study with an old master and they'd pay the old master maybe a thousand dollars or something and so I was doing that and spending time with him and and then my friend Cece Conway who lives here in Chapel Hill and who is a folklorist was interested in putting together some radio shows of, of Tommy you know and then from there she decided let's make a film about him. We'll get Les Blank to be the cinematographer. <laughs> and she, she got me in on it as the sort of music person. So she and I worked together on this film called Sprout Wings and Fly About Tommy. So I got to know Tommy really well. And when Mike and I split up, I decided I wanted to move somewhere close mm. so I could spend more time with some of these old people who were old at that time yeah to get in touch with the real yeah and I was kind of you know at first I went to Nashville and lived with my friend Anne for a month or two but I just you know the scene there you know it's like you always were kind of like oh yeah what's it called doing business yeah kind of like and I just you know and I missed old time music and there wasn't there's a lot there now but now at that time there wasn't much and <clears throat> so I bought a place. I, I, I rented a place up around. I got a, found a place, moved to Galax. I had a couple of friends who were living near there. And so I had 
some people I knew. And then, then I just sort of, and I was paying $50 a month rent in this nice. little place. It was great. And I read down the road about a mile was this 90-year-old fiddle player that I got to be really good friends with, wonderful old fiddler. And, and then this other friend of mine, we would go around and we just started taking pictures and recording people and learning. And I, and I played with a little bluegrass band. And then I got this idea to start the Old Time Herald. Kind of like the Bluegrass Unlimited Yeah, for it was music. modeled after the Bluegrass Unlimited. And I, t- I, remember t- I talked to Pete Kuykendall for a long time. Because I was in on the beginning of Bluegrass Unlimited. Mm-hmm. I just bought 10 years. I just bought, like, I think, 72 to 82. I have the original eBay. mimeographed volume Ooh. one, number one. Cool. <laughs> is it? Is it? Eight and a half by eleven. You know, wow! It was, it, was, it was great. Yeah. And um, so I, I was aware, and I wanted a magazine for old time music that was like Bluegrass and Lily. It was going to be a slick four color cover. But I didn't know the first thing about publishing a magazine. I knew nothing. So I just began calling a lot of people because I knew people. Like so, I called Dave Freeman. I called Charles Wolf. Dave Freeman told me about this little local printer up in Roanoke, little family printing outfit. So I went up and talked to them. And, and then we, within six months of the idea, we had the first issue out in time for the Galax Fiddlers Convention. And so after a couple of years, and we were becoming a nonprofit, and right. we had to get our shit together, I really decided I needed to have be in a place where there were more resources. So I decided to move down here. To Durham. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I, I want to make sure you get to your dentist appointment. Yeah. Let me let me skip to this. Yeah. Thing. So when does when does um, when does Hazel get back in touch? How does how does the? Well, we slowly began to you know she used to. I would go over to her house. We went, we'd go out to dinner or something like that, or we'd invite her over for Thanksgiving. And, and that was fine. Like that was kids. at it first was okay. And then this friend of our mutual friend who was uh, a booking agent and he ran a place called the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, California. Legendary venue. Yeah. He wanted to put a tour together. He wanted to do a tour with us. Just because he liked you? Yeah. And so he talked to us. He talked to Hazel first, I think, and then he talked to me. And then it was, he had to kind of negotiate a little bit. How so? (laughs) Well, I think Hazel was a little like, I'm not sure if I want to do this. Yeah. Well, she had been, you know, she'd been through something before. Oh, yeah. And she was doing all right on her own. Yeah, she was doing great on her own. And so, but eventually it sort of worked out and we did this tour together and it was very successful. It was on the, mostly on the West Coast, I think. How'd that feel to be back on stage with her? It was really neat. And a lot of people were interested and came out. It felt good for you to be back there? Yeah, it felt really nice. And so from there, we did a few other things. Not not a lot, but we did a couple of concerts and something at the Smithsonian. And, and you know, she she came back into our lives. The, the hardest, one of the hardest things for me was that because she cut me out of her life, she also cut the kids out of her life. And the kids were close to Hazel. And they were close to Hazel. And that was hard for them, I think. Right. So it was really nice when she came back. And she'd come over for Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, only talk about it this as much as you want, but how did you how did you get the news that Hazel had, had passed? Well, <clears throat> she had had a, a stroke before she passed. Um, and she told me about it, and I was like, I can't believe it. She had this stroke, and she the way she t- she told me all about it, 
and she had had it while she was in bed and then it took her a while to be able to get out of bed she managed to drag herself in the bathroom and she was in the bathroom for a long time and then she managed to drag herself out to the couch which is where the phone was but she still didn't it was like on a weekend so it was from like maybe Saturday night through Sunday she was going through all this and when she got to the couch and the phone she didn't call 911 she waited till Monday morning to call the doctor's office and then took a cab to the doctor and it was like I was like I can't believe you know you did, didn't call somebody you know you could have called my kid, my sons or somebody and but you know it's just that was so typical of Hazel to not want an ambulance pulling up to the house she just didn't want anybody to know her business mm. and if an ambulance had come up to the house everybody would have been like oh what's wrong with Hazel mm. you know and that that was t- terrifying for her to think that somebody might be privy to this her her weakness or whatever more more terrifying than the yeah more terrifying and you know i was trying to talk her into wearing one of these things you know these things that you wear around your neck and you know i've fallen i can't get up yeah but you know that's the last thing she would ever do she wouldn't wear glasses because she didn't want (laughs) and that led to some really difficult situations Mm -hmm. So, so it, but it was sort of typical, and I think that I heard about it. I, you know, I don't even remember how I heard, but I, I asked my kids, my boys, to check up on her now and then, and they, they did. And there was one time we went, Jesse and I went over to her house, and we were knocking on the door. She was, we were supposed to pick her up for something. She didn't answer. She didn't answer. Bang on the door. I went around, banged on the window. Did nothing. And so I got the number somehow of the apartment and called him. He and he went in and he opened the door, <laughs> and she was there. She just hadn't heard, mm. and she was like, "What are you doing?" You know, and she was kind of like a little bit pissed yeah. off that we were <laughs> creating all this ruckus. Once again, she didn't want the fuss. She didn't want the fuss. I understand. So, but I and I so I don't know. I think she had another stroke, mm. and I didn't hear about it till later. Someone called you. Yeah. Um, how, how did that feel when you found out? It was hard to fathom. It was hard to fathom. I went. I went to the funeral. We sang at the funeral, and uh, it was a nice funeral. It was nice. Her family was there, but yeah, it was uh, hard. I bet it was. What did yeah. you sing at the funeral? Uh huh. I think we sang. I feel the shadows down upon me, and very angels. That uh, won't you come and sing for me? I feel the shadows now upon me, and fair angels beckon me before. Hazel and Alice are regarded as what Monroe and the Stanley brothers were to you guys. 
to a, I suppose to a generation. I, I don't think we in re- we we sort of saw it in retrospect more than we did at the time, which I guess is natural. But um, yeah, I think it's true. Did, did you think did Hazel know before she died that she had some importance? Yes, I'm sure she did. Well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, how do you? Feel? I mean, the only the only I don't know how to put this. You guys were so pioneering for women in bluegrass. Now, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fallacy, as you mentioned earlier, that you guys were the only ones. There's a bunch of people who haven't oh, been yeah. written about and haven't been explored in the yeah. same way. But regardless of that, you guys were yeah. are and uh, were incredibly important in female representation in bluegrass. But it still feels like we still got a lot of ways to go. Well, I think part of the reason, see, we were, we reached different kinds of audiences too and I think that was part of what I mean we were reaching audiences that were consciously talking about women needed to be more recognized and stuff like this and I think that helped bring that to the fore as far as we were concerned to a certain extent too so um but what were you saying? Lots to do. I mean, still, still a lot. Of, oh, I mean, yeah. There's still oh, not yeah, an incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. amount of women oh, in, I know. in bluegrass, I know. you know? Yeah. And old time music. Yeah. Both. Are you hopeful that things are going to get better in the music? Oh, yeah. I am. The people are working on it. Yeah. It feels, does it feel yeah. different than it did back when you were starting? It does. It does. I mean, there's much more consciousness about that. More women are involved in IBMA. And, I, you know, I think uh, there's a lot to be done, but. We're getting there. Yeah. 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 Is it a trip to be like after spending so much time? How do I put this in a in a in a gracious way? Like after spending so much time, <laughs> sort of really into the music of elders. Oh no! no listen, I'm always getting up on the stage and saying, you know, I learned this tune from an old fiddler that I was hanging out, and you know, and then I then I realize you've got to be careful how you sling that word word old around. <laughs> You're that person now. <laughs> You're you're the elders of our generation now. Yeah, yeah, and now in the induction into the IBMA Hall of Fame. Yeah, that must have been meaningful. That was that was so cool. Yeah. Uh, thanks for everything. Thank you. On behalf of us all, though, thanks for all your music. You betcha. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. Sing the hymns we sang together that plain little church with the benches all worn. How dear to my heart, how precious the moments we stood shaking hands and singing the song. All right, that's my conversation with Alice Gerard in her kitchen in Durham, North Carolina. I'll never forget that. As long as I live, uh, it was it was so cool. And don't worry, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, Alice did get to her dentist appointment on time. Uh, I had a flight right afterwards, and uh, I got I got there barely on time. I remember going through like a a thunderstorm, and I find American, maybe it's Southern American, but like I worked in a radio camp, and I think it was Vermont, or maybe Connecticut for a while, and. Uh, it was. It rained so hard. It doesn't rain like that in Canada. So I remember just driving through the rain, being sort of terrified. But uh, you know, everyone made it. And so I'm so grateful to help tell Alice's story there. I want to acknowledge the contribution of the folks behind "You Gave Me a Song: The Life and Music of Alice Gerard," which is an incredible documentary about Alice and her music, which I got to see a couple of months before it came out uh, to aid in the research for that interview. So thanks to them. Go check out their website. 
Watch their movie any way you can. AliceGerardFilm.com. Up next, Bela Fleck, uh, considered by many, myself included, to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest. Uh, like, you know, the Earl's... I guess you gotta... I mean, Earl Scruggs. Earl Scruggs, greatest five-string banjo player of all time. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll just do that. But, you know, Bela Fleck is, is there too. He's on, the, he's on the Mount Rushmore. And this is a guy who's done so much, you know, be it the Flectones or his orchestral work or his, you know, his work with Throw Down Your Heart, his incredible, you know, documentary about tracing the roots of the banjo uh, back to the continent of Africa, you know, but we talk about bluegrass. We talk about Bela Fleck's bluegrass albums, the bluegrass sessions, his life as a bluegrass musician, learning from J.D. Crow, growing up as this like child prodigy in New York, learning from Tony Trishka. Um, wild interview. He got real about some things that I wasn't expecting him to get real about, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. So that's coming up in about two weeks' time. Uh, Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Rittenauer-Jacobs, with help, as always, from the entire BGS team, including producer Chris Jacobs, associate editor Justin Hiltner, managing editor Craig Shelburne, and all of the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots, culture, redefined. Discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. Toy Heart this week is mixed by Michael Laval and Stephanie Coleman. Transcription this week by Aaron Roblin. Kristen Andreessen and Critter Eldridge perform our theme song, which was written by the father of bluegrass music, Bill Monroe, in a song called Toy Heart. Darling, you toyed with a toy heart. I think I played your game right from the start. Kristen Andreessen, by the way, who who is part of our theme song, amazing songwriter in her own right. She has her own records, uh, a great one called Gondolier. Check that out. Uh, Critter has a hot new band, Punch Brothers, starting out. High hopes for the kids. Like, subscribe, and leave a review if you find yourself inside with a lot of time on your hands. We're on Instagram as well, at Toy Heart Podcast. Later on. <laughs>